Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. It's interesting for us about prayer and how we pray or maybe how we don't pray. Why we pray or maybe why we don't pray, right? And we are in, uh, we have started this series last uh, Sunday. uh, Pastor Phil kicked us off with the series called Summer in the Psalms. And really our mission for this series is to immerse, inspire church in the Psalms. And we really want to to see two things happen. First, the reason we want to do this is because a church that is not immersed in the Psalms is a church that is not learning how to pray. And so your prayer life may be shallow, maybe you're, maybe you're not sure what to, what to say, um, or maybe you're even having a, a hard time relating to God in a deeper way. The Psalms give us language to be able to pray, and it, it, it helps us to connect the truths of who God is and who we are, and it is this beautiful way of learning to pray. But number two is that a church that is not immersed in the Psalms is a church that is not equipped to deal uh, with the difficult feelings and emotions of this life. So I don't know what your maybe tradition has been growing up, but maybe there were certain emotions that you were not allowed to, to display or to be felt, Right? Um, but when you read the psalm, what you'll notice is you'll see, you know, this sort of negative rage come up, deep depression, disappointment, loneliness, deep despair. You'll see all of it sort of laid out bare. The psalms are full of raw emotions, some that even as Christians were like, ooh, I don't know that we're supposed to display that kind of emotion. But what I love, not just about the psalm, but about the Bible in general, is that it's not sort of a Maybelline cover-up Christianity, right? There's no filters when it comes to scripture. It shows everybody in, in everything that they are just sort of laid out to bear. And so when you read the psalm and you go through the Psalter, everything there is laid with raw emotion. And so we also pray that through going through some of the Psalms, that you will find a redemptive way to express your deepest and perhaps even your darkest part of your heart before the Lord so that that way he can heal and shape your heart towards him. So that's really our goal for this series. And, And this morning, I am going to be speaking on the topic, Big Problems, Small God. Big problems, small God. And this is coming from Psalm 111. Psalm 111. So let's read that now. Psalm 111 says this. Praise the Lord. I will exalt the Lord with all my heart. In the counsel of the, of, of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. 
He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and given them the land of other nations. The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever and ever. And, And they are enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. His, and he ordained his covenant forever, holy and awesome in his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Um, so if you're reading through the book of Psalms, Um, then what's interesting is that you'll actually notice that Psalm 111 and 112, which we obviously haven't read this morning, but if you you read them in parallel, they actually look alike, right? Not not only are they both in 10 verses each, right? But there are remarkable links that are happening between the two. See, Psalm 111 describes God, this great God. And then Psalms 112, right? Uh, what, what, what Psalms 112 does is describes a great life, a great human being, a great and flourishing, happy life. So there's these two links between the two that are completely unmistakable. Verse 3 says that, you know, his righteousness endures forever. That's what verse 3 and 111 says. Well, verse 3 and 112 basically says the same thing. But then he says the godly people, their righteousness endures forever. Verse 8 and 9 talk about God's precepts being established forever, right? It's a word that really means unshakable. And then if you go over to verses 8 and 9 and 112, we read that it talks about, and the people of God. That their righteousness is unshakable. Godly people are unshakable. Now, what's clearly being laid out if you read them together is this. If you want the life of Psalms 112, right? If you want that life, this flourishing, thriving life in Christ, then you need to know the God of Psalms 111. For the life of 112, you need to know the God of 111. They're linked and they can't be separated. To truly know the God of Psalms 111 leads to the life that we read in Psalms 112. Do you see that? There there is a link between knowing God. And so from chapter 111, let's just extract a few things this morning. One, I want to talk about the real creator. Secondly, the real change. And third, the real connection. So first, the real creator. Second, the real change. And third, the real connection. So number one, the real creator. See, this describes what is called an all-powerful, involved God. There's a lot here, but first of all, God's ability to create. Verse 2 says this, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all those who delight in him. The scientific building, the laboratory at Cambridge University actually has this over the door of their building. God is a creator. He has created everything. 
Also in verse 4, it says that he is the redeemer, that he has caused his wonders to be remembered. Now, the word wonder there in Hebrew is actually a little bit different because what that means is his saving actions, his saving actions to save people. And then verses four through six say that he provides food for those who fear him, that he remembers his covenant forever, that he's given them land of other nations. And so he's causing them to remember all the things that he has done, that the Lord provided them, them food for those who have feared him. Remember the manna in the wilderness. He gave them lands over uh, other nations, even though they were freed slaves and they didn't have technologically advanced weaponry, God still enabled them to fight their enemies, face their enemies, turn them away and have a homeland. And then in verse nine, it talks about how he provided redemption for his people. Now we'll come back to that in a minute, but, but in other words, that word redemption means freed from slavery. It's very specific, free from slavery. So what we read here is that God is a creating God, right? That God is a God of redemption and that he is a sovereign God. He's a creating God, he's a God of redemption, and he's a sovereign God. In other words, we have a transcendent and an imminent God. On one hand, right, we are being told that he is completely and absolutely all-powerful. That's what theologians call uh, when they say he's transcendent. That's what they mean. He has created everything. He sustains everything. He is absolutely all-powerful. He is transcendent. But we're also told that he's not just transcendent, but that he is involved, that he's involved. That's what theologians call not just transcendent, but imminent. So he's transcendent, all-powerful, but he's imminent. He's close. He's involved. He's here, right? So he's radically there, you know. He, he's infinitely up there, but he's also radically right here. He's infinitely up there, but he's radically right here. Transcendent and imminent. Powerful and involved. Now what difference does that make? What difference does that make? As you can see this morning, Pastor Phil is not here with us. He was supposed to preach. He called me yesterday and asked if, uh, he, if I could because he is not feeling well. And so pray for me as seeing how we wrote this message last night and this morning. <laughs> but as I was writing it, you know, you, it really does draw the question, well, why does that matter? What difference does that make? Well, in ancient times, it was the transcendence of God that was completely different than all other cultures and antiquity believed, right? Now, sure, other cultures believed in gods. Yeah, right. Of course they did. The, the, the river god, you know, the, the local god, you know, the uh, you know, god of the trees, whatever, right? All of these gods, right? But the biblical idea of one God who wasn't just kind of a force, right? Eastern religions have always believed that there's a God in that sense of this world, right? And has a life force around it. But, but the God of the Bible isn't just an extension of this world. The God of the Bible is not a local deity with limits, right? Not like Zeus, right, who could be fooled, right? Only the biblical God is infinitely transcendent, completely all-powerful. Therefore, the God of the Bible, the God of Psalms 111, was unknown to any culture, really, in antiquity. However, I would also say 
that the God of the Bible, the God of Psalms 111, also challenges our culture in modernity. In modernity. Challenges our culture. Currently, I'm reading through a book written by a philosopher called Charles Taylor, and he's written a book uh, titled A Secular Age. And uh, what he tries to do is he tries to understand and analyze what it means to live in a secular age. How did that happen? And what does it even mean to say that, right? And one of the interesting things that he says about the book is that to live in a secular age, to be in a secular age, does not necessarily mean that we don't believe in God at all. To be secular is not just that. But actually what he points out is that 80 to 90% of people in America say they believe in God. In Europe, there's even a majority. Even in France, more than half the people say they believe in God, right? Post-Christian culture. They say that. He says to be secular means that though we may believe in God, we don't believe in God the same way we used to. We don't believe in God the same way we used to. Here, here's what he suggests. Back in the 17th and 18th centuries, what arose was a, a philosophy called deism. And you may have heard of it. Deism was a very popular amongst European intellectuals, the cultural elite, right? And what it said is this. Well, of course, there's a God who created the world, right? He created the world. But he, he created the world the same way as a clockmaster creates a clock, so if you see this great clock and you build, this clockmaster builds this amazing clock, he doesn't have to sit there and like turn the hands, right? If it's a good clock, it sort of runs on its own. And deists believe, oh, oh, that's the kind of God we believe in, right? That's the kind of God that, 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 that yeah, God just sort of created the world and then left it to human agency, they say, look, we, we don't believe in miracles and God being right there in, in that sense, always revealing himself and, and, and us having to always obey him. No, no, no. God creates the world and then it's really us to, up to us what we want to do. Up to our own moral intuitions and, 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 and for us to make these decisions and, and for us to make it a good place to live. And what Charles Taylor says is that means that you had a transcendent God who was not imminent. You had a God who created the world, but is not in the world, not there, right? He's not somebody you have to deal with every moment of the day. He created the world for our benefit, and now it's up to us to do something with it. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. See, what happens is this. Though many people believe in God, maybe in fact most people would probably say they believe in God, Right? In a secular age, what that means, though, is that they have a very thin view of God. They've thinned out what God is. That is, there's a God who, who is more remote, right? Not someone you have to obey and depend on every moment. And as Taylor put it, the traditional view of God is that we exist for him. The modern view of God is that God exists for us. The traditional view is that we exist for God. The modern view is that God exists for us. That God actually exists for our benefit. That he created the world for our benefit. And now we just have to use it and do what we can with it. Therefore, what that means is nobody believes in the God of Psalms 111. 
Nobody believes either in antiquity or in modernity. Right? The biblical God was unique and is still unique. Somebody's saying, okay, Pastor Roger, that's, that's cool. Okay, got it. Cool information. Good to know. Uh, but still, what difference does that make? Right? What difference does it really make? I mean, I have a job to go to, you know, I have a boss to answer, I have kids to raise, I have classes I'm trying to pass, I have, you know, bills I have to pay. I, I mean, what, what does it doesn't really, really make? I'm going to, you know, I'm writing out resumes and going into interviews. What really difference does it make? You know, I'm having to take medications and I have to go and, and, and try to greet people and I'm in the process of trying to sell my house. I mean, what difference does it really make? Well, in order to understand that, then we have to remember that understanding the real creator leads to understanding the real change. Point two, the real change. You guys doing okay? Good. The saying goes like this, what you believe about God is determinative on how you live. What you believe about God absolutely affects how you live, right? It cannot not affect how you live. So whatever you, whether you believe he exists, whether he doesn't exist, whatever kind of God he is, whatever that situation is, whatever you believe about God will impact how you live. And in this passage, there's a very famous verse that says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. What is that? Well, At the very least, it means seeing God as he is. Seeing God as he is. Not the smaller God of antiquity, not the thinner God uh, of modernity, but appealing and understanding God as he is revealed in scripture. Psalm 111, this God is transcendent and imminent, infinitely up there, radically right here. First of all, to fear God means to actually apprehend who God is. Secondly, to fear God means more than just you believe in him, right? It has to be more than that. It means to awe, to have wonder. It means to grasp this God, to be amazed by this God. It means to actually existentially grasp God. Another way to put it is this, is that we're being called not just to know about God, but to know God. Not just to know about God, but to know God. Oh, and that's very different, isn't it? Sure it is. I could probably give you some fact sheet about myself and you can read on it and now you'll know about me. But that's very different than knowing me. Right? Anybody went on uh, dates and, and, and you went on a date after you met somebody online, right? Very different just reading about the person Compared to now you're sitting there face to face with them, getting to know them. Oh, quite different. Quite different, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. And what this is saying is wisdom equals practical living. Wisdom here is not just knowledge, but it's practical living. What it's saying is simply is this. If you don't grasp who God is, then you won't really live. You'll exist, but you won't live. 
And I can guarantee you there are plenty of people in this room. You're existing, but you're not living. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to the grocery store. You're existing, but you're not living. Sure, sure, sure. You're going to work. You're existing, but you're not living. You're getting dressed. You're existing. You're not living. You're raising your kids. You're existing. You're not living. You're making the coffee, and you're washing the car, and you're doing the chores. You're existing, and you're not living. You, you see what I'm saying? There's plenty of people here who are existing, but you're not living. You know? You're going to get your haircut. You're going to get your nails done. You're existing, but you're not living. You're just existing. And one day looks like the next, and looks like the next, then your Tuesday looks like your Thursday, your Friday looks like your Saturday, and it's just all together. You blink, a week has gone by, you yawn, a month has gone by, and you're like, where did the time go? What's going on? You had all these dreams, you had all these desires, and, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go back and get my degree, or I'm going to go, and it just, what happened? You're existing, but you're not living. And before you know it, mothers, and fathers turn into grandmas and grandpas and you're existing, but you're not living. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, to the degree that you understand who God really is, it's to the degree that you will begin to understand how life really works. Distortions in your understanding of God will get, cause you to have distortions in how you think life really works. Oh, yes, it will. Right? If you have a God that is too harsh and not loving, if you have a God who's all loving but not holy, if you have a God who's transcendent but not imminent, imminent but not transcendent, it's going to affect the way in which you live. It is the fear of the Lord that affects your wisdom to the degree in which you understand what life is. And what this is saying is that if you existentially grasp this God, then you'll have the life that we read about in chapter 112. Let me just, I'm not going to read 112. I know that might be too much scripture reading in one setting for some people. So let me just get, kind of give you some pointers here. Watch it. These are just parts. Parts of Psalms 112. This is what it says. Look at this. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Are you gracious and compassionate and righteous? Okay. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. Are you generous? Do you do that? Who conduct their affairs with justice. Is that you? Surely the righteous will not be shaken. They will have no fear of the bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting the Lord. They are freely uh, scattered their gifts to the poor their righteousness endures forever I don't know about you but I'm like sign me up right sign me up even in those brief snatches of Psalms 112 just the, just the etchings of 112 you, you, you really can kind of see four things right you, you see that, 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 that this life is relationally strong right they have, a, they have a, a, a thriving relational life. That they're people of high integrity. They're known for people of being their word, right? They're people who care about justice, both positive and negative. Negative meaning dealing with like injustice, right? And positive meaning like living just lives, right? And, and then lastly, even in darkness, their light dawns, right? They don't fear bad news. In other words, they can handle suffering. No matter how dark things get, they can handle it with poise. 
Don't we need a life like that? You see? The Bible says, with what you believe about God, what you believe about God. As I am reading this book from Charles Taylor, he says something about um, people uh, that are practical deists today. That is that they don't believe they exist for God's benefit. They actually believe that God exists for theirs, right? They, they don't believe that they have to obey God. They believe that God kind of said, here you go, now do whatever you want, right? And, and they kind of say, as long as I'm pretty good, as long as my life is pretty good, and as long as I'm, you know, then, then, then things should turn out right. Listen to this, Christian Smith, even though his name's Christian, I'm not saying he's a Christian, he's just Christian Smith, who is a sociologist, who recently studied and detailed the religious belief of younger American adults. Okay, so young adults in America. And these young adults, he says, are practical deists, right? And, and, and they would never use that term. Uh, but, but this is what he says, that the average young adult believes that most do believe there's a God. They do. And most believe that he's made this world, right? But they don't believe that that means that they have to listen to him or that they even have to rely on him, that their lives depend on him. No, no. But they do believe that if they are generally live a good life, right, that then that means that now it's up to God to give them a good life. That if they're good, that now God owes them. And see, what happens is then when something bad happens, do, do you see what I'm saying? You're like, wait a minute, you owe me. You know, I was kind to that person, right? Very thin view of God. And so Christian, uh, Christian Smith, the, the sociologist, calls uh, the, the normal worldview for young American adults a moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what he says. And, and let me just break down what he means by this. Is this, most Christians have not rejected God, but they've reduced him. Most Christians have not rejected God, but they've reduced him, Right? There's reduced him. A God that exists for my benefit. And both Charles Taylor and Christian uh, Smith uh, says this is what's happened. Is that, with they, uh, that, that our society has thinned out who God is. And because of that, then they can't handle suffering. See? If you believe that the meaning of life is to be happy, then the meaning of life is to be free to live as you want. Then that means that you believe that God exists for your benefit. And that means that when suffering comes, when hurt comes, when loss comes, when pain comes, then it will, it will just destroy you. It will destroy you, you see. Both this sociologist and this philosopher talk about this thin view of God. Wow. 
Because, well, because what happens is this sense of entitlement comes up against the reality of life, that life is nasty and brutish and short, and it, and it leads to all sort of radical disillusionment. In other words, in, in verse 8 here, we see that God's precepts are established forever, right? In verse 8, what that means is, is that God's precepts are unshakable. And then if you go over to chapter 12, it says that, listen, his people don't fear bad news, that their heart is steadfast. In other words, they're unshakable. They're unshakable. Do you have a thin view of God? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's not that your problems are too big, but that your idea of God is too small. Maybe in your efforts to make God convenient, to make God controllable, to make God manipulable, to, to, to be able to force God to fit in your idea of what you think God should be. Maybe when you did that, by doing that, then now what you've done is you've made God too small for your big problems. Well, that's why you don't pray. Oh yeah, that's why we don't read our word. That's why we don't go to him. We go to everything else first for our problems, don't we? Because we've made God too small, haven't we? There's this movie, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Remember that movie? Yeah. And, and what happens is this, this guy, he's an inventor, and so he created this machine. And, and, and basically, uh, the machine is to sort of shrink items. So, you know, the idea is like, well, maybe you're moving, and you don't want to move all this furniture, so you can just shrink it down to a size that, you know, you can lift and you can carry and makes it all great. You know, and so there's all sorts of, of great things that this machine can do. But, but it doesn't seem to be working right until uh, one day the neighbor kid hits a ball into the window, and, and, and it hits the machine, and it actually causes the machine to work correctly. So the kids all basically get up into the attic where the machine is only to be shrunk by it, right? And so the whole movie is sort of this adventure of what happens and how they're trying to get back to their regular size. I wonder if a movie title for our generation would be Honey, I Shrunk God. Honey, I Shrunk God. Because the reality is that God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. He is ever-present. There isn't anything too far that his grace cannot reach, that his mercy cannot find. There isn't anywhere that you can run, that his love cannot hunt you down, that the shadow of the cross cannot cover you. There is not any space, any crevice that you can curl up in and be scared of and where he cannot come in and comfort you and fill you with courage and with love. Our God. God is a big and powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, ever-present, gracious, full of mercy, full of redemption, ever-forgiving God, you see. How do we discover that God? How do we discover that truth? How do we go from merely existing to living, from, from instability to unshakability? How do we do that? Remember in the movie Back to the Future? Remember? And uh, they, they had to go on the clock tower and they had to connect the, to connect, you know, right? Remember that part? <laughs> you have to have a connection. Yeah. Not just any connection. You have to have point three, the real connection. 
How do we connect with the power of God and the fear of God and the knowledge of God to our lives in such a way that the God of Psalm 111 produces in us the life of 112? How do we do that? Well, first off, it tells us in verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts, precepts have good understanding. Do you see that? Now, our culture hates that line. Follow his precepts. Really? You see? The beginning of this thing called wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts, which means this. If you want the wisdom, then you obey his precepts. Oh, see, that, that probably does something a little bit to you, right? Like, oh, that word obey. Yuck. Right? It rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Of course it does. Yes, it does. Stop acting self-righteous. Of course it does. Right? Yeah, there's something within us. I, when, we were at, when we were at Living Stones, I, I brought this out. There's something that, that, that's in us that says, no, I want I to I do things my way. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Right? Of course. Right? What are his precepts, his laws, his revelation, his words? Right? What we call the Bible are his precepts. Scripture. And we, we, we have to listen to this and understand it and, 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 and see how this is trustworthy. Every series, we have a book that we recommend. And so it's out on our resource table. And for this series, it's the book um, by C.S. Lewis on reflecting on the Psalms. And uh, there's a barcode out there you can scan. And you can actually see the whole library of books that we've recommended for the several series past. And you can go ahead and purchase those if you want. But in that particular book, he... Uh, he comments on this particular passage and he brings out that when we disobey God's commands, we violate ourselves, right? That's what we do. We violate ourselves. In fact, I think I brought this up in the Living Stones um, a couple weeks ago. And I asked them the same thing I want to ask you guys, which is this. I mean, if you were to see a five-year-old driving a car, wouldn't you be a little surprised? Yeah. In fact, wouldn't you be more than just surprised? Wouldn't you be a little worried? Yeah, of course. Why? Because up until this point, there has been no car created that a five-year-old can safely operate, right? There is no licensed vehicle on the road that has been created in such a way that a five-year-old is supposed to operate it. And so because we see that, what do we think will probably happen? Oh, they're, you know, getting an accident, right? Run into somebody, run into something, you know? Hurt the car, hurt themselves, of course, right? Because that's not the car's reality. The car's reality was not created in such a way for it to be operated by a five-year-old. And so when you go against the, what, what, the, how the creator created something, then you're not just violating the creator, you're violating the thing that was created. Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah. Of course. And so when you don't do these things, in other words, when you lie and, 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 and uh, when you commit adultery and, and uh, when, you know, you uh, sin, basically... What you're doing is you're not just violating God's laws. You're violating yourself. 
Do you see that? You're violating you. Of course. And so there's really two ways to live. There's the wise way that Psalms 111 is telling us about. And then there's the stupid way that also Psalms 111 is telling us about. Right? The stupid way is go ahead, hold on to your grudges. Go ahead, don't forgive. Go ahead, be petty. Go ahead, be selfish. Go ahead, live for yourself. Go ahead, break all your promises. Go ahead, go ahead and do that. But what you will end up seeing is that you will be crushed by life. On the other hand, if you obey the precepts, the precepts of God are true, then you're living in a reality that you were created for. You see? Wow. My goodness. Number two, how else do we make this connection? Is that you have to grasp the grace of who God is. The grace of who God is. What's interesting is as you read about sort of uh, these covenant statements that God makes and says, listen, you know, I promise to be with you. I promise to never leave you. I promise that. And he makes all of these covenant statements, right? If you begin to ask your question, well, wait a minute. What, what does the covenant actually mean? Right? On one hand, God keeps saying, listen, I've entered into a covenant with you, and if you're loyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. On the other hand, he says, I'll never ever leave you, and I'll always keep my co- a covenant with you, and I'll always remember my covenant. Right? So is the covenant of God, God conditional or unconditional? Is it conditional on human obedience, or is it unconditional based on God's love? And the answer is yes. See, obviously Psalms 111 doesn't give it to Saul. But what's interesting about the whole story that we see is that God says, listen, I am going to keep my covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will be your God even when you aren't being my people. Right? That word redemption that we talked about earlier, that means to be freed from slavery. It doesn't just mean to be freed from slavery, right? But the verb means to pay a ransom to get out of slavery. See, slavery originally was an economic condition, right? And a person was a slave because they were in debt. And therefore, the word means that if you want to be released as a slave, you have to pay the cost the slave can't pay. And God somehow did that. Somehow, God did that. Somehow, God did that. Well, to the Old Testament, it's a somehow. In the New Testament, it's a know-how. We know exactly how he did that, don't we? We look at the cross and we know exactly what happened. As we get ready to close, watch this. This thing of grace this thing of grace that, that meets us, that calls us, that this thing called grace that, 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 that we can come and we need to grapple with and understand that, that, that our whole Christian reality is not based on performance, but it's based on you placing your trust in Christ. That's what it's based on. You placing your trust in Christ. As we get ready to close, the final thing you need to do 
is you need to worship. That's what it says. You need to worship. Right? Let me just show you some of the worship phrases from this text. Okay? I'll just show you. One, he says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's private. Second, he says, I will exalt the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. That's public. Then he says, great are the works of the Lord they pondered. That's mental. By all who delighted them, that's emotional. We worship the Lord privately, publicly, mentally, and emotionally. We worship the Lord privately. We worship the Lord publicly. We worship him with our minds. We worship him with our hearts. We worship, oops, got excited. We worship the Lord. <laughs> right? This is important. When you come before God and you praise him. When you stand before the Lord and you lift your hands, you physically lift them to God, you, you posture your heart, you kneel, you sit, and you worship the Lord. When you do that, when you worship him, when you obey him, and when you grasp his grace, then you connect to this God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, who is really here right now. Would you stand to your feet? Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that as we begin to respond to the reality of who you are, that, Lord Jesus, in times where we have made you small, that Heavenly Father, that in this moment, we will see how big you are in our hearts and in our minds, that we will come before you and that we will worship you for who you are. Lord God, I praise you, Lord Jesus, because there is none like you, God. I thank you, Heavenly Father, because there is not a sin too dark that you do not cover. There is not a person too broken that you cannot restore. There is not a soul too lost that you cannot find. Heavenly Father, your love knows no bounds. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a really good week. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspirechurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.